welcome to Talking Research. I am Asmita and this is a podcast that features in-depth interviews with prominent academics and researchers who study sexual violence across its different manifestations. This conversation features an in-depth discussion of sexual violence, both in specific cases and more generally. If this is something that you find disturbing, please feel free to stop listening at any point. Today I'm talking to Dr. Ruth Friskney and Ruth is a research fellow at the University of Edinburgh doing some really exciting research on sexual violence and child abuse, which she'll tell you more about. at the start of the episode but today we're talking to her about her study on public attitudes to child sexual exploitation in Scotland so let's dive in hello ruth how are you today welcome to talking research hi there thank you for having me i'm very well how are you i'm good too um so we're talking from i mean as i don't think i ever say this but uh, all of these podcast episodes are recorded in different parts of the world so i am in india right now and ruth is in the uk so you know everyone i speak to is mostly not in india so it's really exciting to coordinate time zones and all of that <laughs> yeah i'm very impressed that you can keep track of it all <laughs> um i don't always manage to do it perfectly but uh it works for the most part <laughs> and everyone's really patient as well yeah i'm really excited for our conversation so tell us about yourself how did you get into um I mean tell us about yourself first and how you you would introduce yourself in a way that you like to be introduced and then how did you get into researching child sexual exploitation in Scotland Uh yeah so I am a researcher at the Childhood and Youth Studies Research Group in Edinburgh University um and I'm focused on gender based violence so at the moment I am working on a European funded project looking at children affected by domestic abuse and um specifically it's looking at how we can improve children's participation rights in child contact processes and that's going on in five countries in Europe so that's really really exciting um before i started on this post i was working at an organisation called Bernardo's Scotland in a policy job um and Bernardo's Scotland has done a lot of work around child sexual exploitation um in 2013 the scottish parliament the petitions committee did an inquiry into child sexual exploitation and that was a big motivator around um Scotland getting an action plan and a lot of work starting happening around um child sexual exploitation and while I was at Bernardes um one of the things that we know about child sexual exploitation is how little we know um there's an awful lot of gaps in our evidence base and some of that's the really really basic stuff like how many children are affected and in what ways um and while i was there i managed to kind of identify this small piece of research it's very much a pilot study looking at public understanding of child sexual exploitation in scotland mm. so did you always know that you wanted to look into child sexual exploitation or is that something that just came about so um i came into research um from having worked in public policy for a long time and the reason I came to research is I got very interested in how the ways that we talk about things and the kind of the societal structures and the public attitudes how that affects the decisions we're able to make in public policy 
so I came to do a linguistics PhD, which gives you the sort of scope to learn how to analyse those things in the forms of discourses. Um, and mm. while I was doing that, I also got involved with the women's aid movement in Scotland. And that was sort of where I first um, really gained an understanding around gender based violence. Um, so I went into the Bernardo's job very kind of interested in the areas of gender based violence. And they've got a big focus on child sexual exploitation. So it was those things coming together, really. Mm. And Bernardo's is this uh, British charity which yes. uh, tackles child abuse, right? Yeah, sorry, I should have said. So Bernardi's is a children's charity. It's a very big children's charity in the UK. Um, I mean, it works with a lot of children in a lot of different ways. It will have services that support children with disabilities and services that provide employability services for children. And it's got, um, it sort of did a piece of work and identified three priority areas a couple of years back, which were children in and leaving care, child sexual exploitation and child sexual abuse and um, the mental health of children. Before I get into that, I also wanted to ask, you're also involved with the local Rape Crisis Centre, right? Uh, yeah, that's right. I'm a volunteer trustee of Edinburgh Rape Crisis Centre, which um, I'm I'm sort of sure you're familiar with organisations like Edinburgh Rape Crisis that work with people affected by sexual violence. There's a lot of pretty incredible people working there, doing extraordinary things and working with survivors. Um, If I'm allowed to make a small plug, Edinburgh Rape Crisis Centre fairly recently published an anthology called Rising Free, which is creative writing by several survivors. And it is pretty amazing if you look it up. It is well worth it. Well worth having a look at if you've got a chance. Yeah, we can also put that in the episode description if you want. That would be great. Um, Yes, please. For sure. And now back to your research in this one, which uh, you did for Bernardo's, which examines public attitudes towards child sexual exploitation in Scotland. So before we get into public attitudes, um, to ground us in this discussion, what is child sexual exploitation and how does it manifest? Uh, That is such a good question. Um, It's also a really big (laughs) question. There's... um, there's quite a lot behind the terminology of child sexual exploitation. And because my background is linguistics, this is the kind of thing I get very, very interested in. Um, Scotland has a formal definition of child sexual exploitation, which um, is something people could take a look at. And there's also uh, there's lots of people who've written quite a lot about the history of this, like um, Sophie Hallett, again, would be worth taking a look at. Just to give you a sort of a way in, the way I think about it, Um, So child sexual exploitation is child sexual abuse. And with child sexual abuse, as with, I would argue, pretty much every form of gender based violence, we, as in people in society, tend to blame the victim. We tend to blame the person who's affected rather than the person who is perpetrating the abuse. And I think that child sexual exploitation, I often think of it as a term that encompasses some of the situations of child sexual abuse where we are most likely historically to blame the child so if you think about the situation of a young woman who maybe doesn't have somewhere to sleep that night and then someone offers her um, a place to sleep in return for sexual activities that would be a sort of example of child Mm. sexual exploitation and you don't have to go back very far in time to find a point where we would have not only very much blamed that child but possibly even criminalized her called her a child prostitute, something like that. And child sexual Mm. exploitation very much came about as a terminology that was to try and help us see 
that there is a child who is being sexually abused there and that there is a perpetrator who is abusing her and to try and get us to recognize that and provide support and protection for the child and try and do something about tackling the abuser rather than blaming her or even criminalizing her for what's happening to her. Hmm. What is the situation like in Scotland? Um, Do you know of any statistics? I mean, we don't really need statistics to understand or to even acknowledge that child abuse is a problem everywhere in the world. Like that is unquestionable. It's, it's, It's at epidemic proportions. But I feel like statistics help you get an idea of how bad the problem is. So do you know of that at all? So that's one of the big problems with child sexual exploitation is that um, the statistics quite often aren't there. We don't know how many children are affected. Um, We don't necessarily know in which different ways they're affected. Um, The kind of statistics that you do get, so Scotland has criminal justice statistics, but you can't always break those down to see um, sexual offences against children. And then obviously you've got this issue that lots of sexual, lots of um, people affected by sexual violence don't report because they don't have confidence in Mm. the system or they don't want to. Um, or even if they do, that it may not go anywhere. So those, um, a lot of what happens in terms of sexual violence doesn't make it into the criminal justice statistics. So, sorry, that's a long-winded way of saying we don't have good statistics um, for Scotland at all. Mm. The um, Centre for Excellence for Child Sexual Abuse in England did a lot of work trying to pull together kind of all the evidence that we have in general about child sexual abuse and this is child sexual abuse as a whole so this would include child sexual exploitation but also um sort of wider experiences of child sexual abuse and they sort of estimated from kind of all these international studies we've got approximately 15 to 20 percent of girls and approximately sort of seven to eight percent of boys will experience sexual abuse before the age of 18 so yeah you could be looking at sort of about one in five girls and maybe up to one in 10 boys. Hmm. What I really found illuminating from reading your study, I mean, it's such such an illuminating study. And um, again, there'll be a link to that in the episode description. But it helped me see this distinction between child sexual abuse and child sexual exploitation. So what is this distinction and why is it important? Um. Yeah, so as I say, child sexual exploitation is child sexual abuse. It's a um, a sort of a subtype, if you like, of child sexual abuse. And it came about um, as a terminology to try and help us recognise a child being abused in situations where, sort of historically, we really, really had not been very good about that. And there is a lot of discussion about whether that definition is helpful. The sort of overriding... Thing that unifies the various definitions that you get is that with child sexual exploitation there might be some form of exchange so this might be somebody who is providing sexual activities um, because otherwise they're going to be harmed or a member of their family is going to be harmed or something like the example I gave before where um, a child doesn't have access to a place to sleep um, or you might also get a child that is manipulated by someone they believe to be a boyfriend into providing sexual activities for that person or for um, people that that person wants to impress or that person's friends, um, either because they sort of believe they're in a relationship or perhaps they've been sort of manipulated into some form of addiction. 
Um, so those are some of the sort of scenarios that you might see. Um, as I say, there's been a lot of discussion about whether this definition is helpful. It came about as a way to help us try and see the abuse in situations where we maybe weren't seeing it. Um, but there has been sort of conversations about whether it's ended up confusing people or whether it's ended up hiding some forms of abuse. Um, what I would say about that is that a lot of that debate so far has happened in terms of the professionals. Um, so, it, you know, it's about whether that terminology has helped our services, our social workers, our charity services, working with young people to identify and tackle child sexual abuse. Um, and that debate hasn't so much happened in terms of young people themselves. We've got, we know very little about how young people talk about how they experience abuse. Um, and it also hasn't happened very much in terms of the public in general. So that was mm. what I was trying to do with this. Um, it's very much a pilot piece of research. But if we're thinking from a sort of public health perspective, if we're thinking from the point of view of everyone is able to play a part in preventing child sexual abuse from happening. Um, and I very much believe that child sexual abuse is not inevitable. No child has to be abused. That's not something that is just an inevitable part of our society. We can all play a part in stopping that. Um, so if we're coming from that kind of public health perspective, then we need to know what the public think, what the public know, what the public think they know, um, so that we can support people to play an active role in preventing child sexual exploitation. This leads me to think that um, child sexual exploitation, it is probably perpetrated more by people who are not known to the child, right? So child abuse generally, because I was speaking to Dr. Francisca Mayink and um, Dr. Nadia Vajar, or child abuse experts on the podcast, and they mentioned that child abuse, as with other forms of gendered violence and sexual violence, is mostly perpetrated by someone that's known uh, by the by the victim and uh -huh. especially for child abuse it's mostly perpetrated by someone who the child trusts and the family trusts so is that is that the same for child sexual exploitation as well um so uh, yes and no <laughs> so again that's quite a complicated question so child sexual exploitation as a sort of terminology was trying to help us recognize some of the situations um, that we might be less able to recognize. So some of the things like young people being exploited by peers, by sort of um, other young people who are, you know, maybe two or three years older than them um, and who have power over them. So it would still be someone that they kind of know, somebody that they trust, um, but it wouldn't necessarily be, for example, someone in their close family unit. Um, but it is like there's no. That's not the defining feature that distinguishes child sexual exploitation. Mm. Um, so a lot of the scenarios would tend to be someone who's maybe not a close family member. But that's you know, there are kind of situations where you will get family members involved in child sexual exploitation as well. OK, and what I've gathered though is the main distinction that needs to be emphasized here is that in child's sexual exploitation there is an element of exchange so the child is sexually exploited in exchange of something which was actually quite en enlightening when I was reading as well because it made me look at the root of the word exploitation and be like okay so there's an exchange involved and I mean that's the thing with words I find that are that you see around thrown around so much that you just kind of stop 
looking or in my case at least i don't really pay that much attention to what exploitation actually means in its root so that was quite cool uh, coming to engagement and now we're going to uh, look at the public understanding aspect of of the study so you found that men appear to be particularly disengaged from the topic of child sexual exploitation yeah so so the reason i was um interested in looking at public understanding is as i say i think everyone can be part of preventing child sexual exploitation um and child sexual abuse as a whole um and there is quite a lot of work that happens that looks at sort of raising awareness around child sexual exploitation as part of contributing to that um and that always kind of left me with the question of if we're trying to raise awareness what is awareness like currently sort of what messages are getting through um what do people actually know um and who doesn't know so i did this pilot survey um so a national survey asking adults in scotland some really basic questions about child sexual exploitation so what do they think it is um who do you think does it who do you think is affected by it um and one of the things that happened is that on i think every question except one um men were more likely um significantly more likely than women to say don't know um and that's a really mm. interesting thing so people say don't know in surveys for lots of reasons we don't necessarily know exactly why they say don't know uh what we do know is that there are some gendered patterns so there's been some sort of previous suggestions that men are less likely than women to say don't know in surveys about politics but more likely to say don't know in sort of areas like childcare that are sort of maybe seen as family or women's domains um and i think what mm. strikes me about that is um one of the things that we do know about child sexual abuse including child sexual exploitation is that the perpetrators are overwhelmingly male um you know the statistics vary a little bit you know between about 90% male to 99% male but we are pretty clear that the perpetrators are male so men are absolutely a relevant population when we're talking about trying mm. to prevent child explo- sexual exploitation um and so the fact that sort of men were much more likely in my survey to be kind of going don't know you know that this was information that they weren't really seeming to have or weren't really seeming to engage with um i found that sort of quite troubling um because you know they're such an important population um and if they're kind of saying don't know what mm. does that mean for our ability to prevent child sexual exploitation so yeah sort of if when we're talking about doing raising awareness work around child sexual exploitation how are we talking about reaching men because they're a really important group to be talking to yeah and i mean even if hypothetically and it's really hard to imagine but even if men weren't predominantly perpetrating child sexual abuse there's still half of the population so if half of the population does not know or does not engage with this very pressing problem then there's an issue there yeah definitely and i suppose i mean yeah so i come at a lot of this as a sort of linguist if we're thinking about what people can do to themselves be a sort of active part of prevention the sort of two first ones that i always think of is first of all is you believe a child if a child ever discloses something to you you would start off by believing the child um and you would support them and you would take it from there um and the other thing is thinking about how we 
you know, amongst ourselves, amongst our friendship groups, talk about anything like this. You know, if we're talking about a situation that we've heard about in the news, you know, where a child um, was involved in something like having to exchange sexual activities for having a place to stay that night. If we talk about that in a way that blames the child, you know, we're contributing to a society that tolerates the abuse of her. And it's really important that men as well as women are thinking about how they talk about this stuff and making sure they're not talking about it in a way that enables or tolerates abuse. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And even as parents and as people in society, just be aware and just be, you know, informed on what's happening. And if you spot any signs, how you can maybe prevent if that situation ever arises and of course the question of not perpetrating it but everything beyond that there are so many roles that men can yeah. can take exactly very much yeah so. so besides this um and there's a bunch of things that you found f- about what the public understands and before before i ask you about those again i want to ask you what areas did you survey for the what, what areas did you focus on in the study geographically uh, so it's a nationally representative survey. So it is um, all local authority areas in Scotland and then weighted so that it's nationally representative. And what, uh, just just for clarity, so if anyone listening has this question, what is the age of children in this bracket? I mean, I feel like some UN studies, they consider children from the age of 1 to 17. So is is this the same age bracket? Yeah, so we would be taking the United Nations Convention of the Rights of the Child definition that a child is up to the age of 18. Um, and actually, that was something that we included in the survey at various points to make sure that when people were reading the word child, they understood that we meant up to the age of 18 when we were asking them questions. Okay, great. Coming back to the public understanding aspects and what you found, you also found that there is this... Uh, feeling that child exploitation child sexual exploitation is happening in the world but just not in my area yeah just not where I live so what is this attitude uh yeah I mean that was um it's it's really really striking it's um it was something I expected to see but I didn't expect it to come through quite that strongly so I think I asked people if they thought child sexual exploitation was a significant issue in the world in the UK in Scotland and in their local area and it went from, I think, 80% saying it was very or fairly significant in the world down to less than 50% thought it was very or fairly significant in their local area. Um, and again, you've got a lot of people saying they didn't know if it was significant in the local area, but also um, I think it was almost a quarter um, said they thought it was not at all or not very significant in their local area. Um, and so this was a survey that was across all parts of Scotland. Um, we did look at whether there were any differences for any parts of Scotland, um, and there weren't really. There were a couple of minor ones, but there was nothing kind of um, systematic. So this is a finding that's basically about what people think regardless of where they are. It's not, I live in this particular area of Scotland and I think child sexual exploitation is happening here, whereas someone else in a different bit of Scotland thinks it isn't. It was pretty much everyone mm. everywhere thinks it is happening but it is happening in other places. Um, And as I say, that wasn't particularly surprising. Scottish government did um, a survey one or two years before where they did a very similar question asking about trafficking. And they got a very similar result. People think it's happening, Mm. but they don't think it's happening near me. Um, And if you look at something like um, Jenny Pierce's work, 
sort of one of the things that she talks about is that what we do a lot with um, child sexual abuse is we create this distance. So, you know, we, we acknowledge it as a problem, but it's over there. It's out there. Um, it's not something we have to deal with. It's something separate in a way. Um, and the problem with that, the consequence of that is we have effectively load it onto the child that it is happening to. You know, if the kind of adults are not seeing it as happening anywhere nearby, when there is a child that is affected nearby, you know, what is that experience like for the child? And what does that mean for our ability to stop what is happening in our local communities and to be part of stopping that? Um, so, um, yeah, that is a sort of, it's a consistent pattern in terms of how we think about child sexual abuse. And it is something that sort of generally we need to try and tra tackle. And it's about how do we get people to acknowledge their power to stop what is happening in terms of child sexual abuse near them without um, sort of making people feel like child sexual abuse is everywhere and therefore they can't do anything when the reality is that we can all do something. That doesn't surprise me, this attitude that it's happening, but just not no. in my local area, because yeah. I, I feel like even in India, this is the same attitude. I mean, I was, I remember I was about 11 or 12 when this, uh, maybe even older, 13 or 14, when this TV show, this this really famous Bollywood actor came on TV and he started talking about all these problems that our community faces. And one of the issues that he covered was child abuse. And, you know, I was staggered to see that it's, or this problem is at such epidemic proportions and before that it it, it was I, no one had ever talked to me about it mm -hmm. uh, I hadn't ever heard about it from friends or from anyone and um, just the statistics I think in India is that estimates suggest it's one in two children one in two. so yeah. you know it's it's a huge huge problem but it, it's the same attitude that it doesn't exist in our society yeah. And I think it's also it's related mm. to what you were talking about before in terms of um, people trying to get messages across that in terms of sexual abuse in general, this is somebody sort of known and trusted to the young person or indeed the adult. You know, the majority of people who kind of perpetrate sexual violence um, against adults or children are people who are known. They're not strangers. Uh, but sort of historically, we've had this stranger danger narrative and you kind of look outside and look away for the source of danger rather than um thinking about it as potentially something that isn't at that distance coming back to this this gender divide who did the public think was more affected um and is this perception compatible with the reality of the situation um yes so uh what came back in the survey is that the majority of people that we asked thought that um all genders um were equally likely to be affected by sexual exploitation it was about two-thirds of people said all genders equally and about one-third who said girls um now as i said before we don't have the best data about child sexual exploitation the kind of the work that's been done on trying to bring together all of the various international studies um, suggests that it's about 20% um, of girls and sort of 7 8% of boys. So the situation that we think we're in um, on the basis of not having the best data is that all genders can be affected. We think girls are disproportionately likely to be affected. Um, and that is why, for example, Scotland recognises child sexual exploitation as a form of gender-based violence, specifically. Um, 
one of the things we also know is that sort of there have been very gendered patterns in our professional responses to child sexual exploitation. So there have been particular issues around boys not being recognised. Um, mm. And one of the things that has sort of come up is boys who are affected by child sexual exploitation quite often not being seen as that and being kind of coming in through other forms of services, maybe coming in through criminal justice services or services for children going missing. And it's only kind of later that we identify that child sexual exploitation is part of what's going on for them. Um, And so there has been a lot of work with professionals to make sure that professionals are aware that boys can be affected. Um, So there's kind of, there's, there's sort of different things going on there. There's a lot of work that has been done around trying to support professionals to understand it can be boys as well as girls. Um, but what I'd sort of take you back to is what I said at the beginning about thinking about what the public understands and what the public needs to know, where a lot of this debate so far has maybe happened in terms of what professionals need to know and what professionals are mm. aware of. Um, and I suppose I think it's it's something that maybe needs a little more digging around in now is what kind of messages we've maybe been getting across to the public um, that maybe some of this has, you know, how have we, have we kind of lost this understanding about the disproportionate impact on girls because we've been doing so much really, really important work with professionals about making sure that we do recognise boys um, and how do we kind of find the balance in that? Hmm. You also found that this public understanding of child sexual exploitation is complex in that there are different concepts that appear to be salient in different um, contexts and sometimes these understandings are quite contradictory so what does that mean what what is contradictory about this understanding yeah so um i asked people a few questions that were trying to get at what people kind of think child sexual exploitation is so i asked people about the formal definition um and i also asked them about uh, some specific scenarios and kind of which scenarios they associated with child sexual exploitation and I also asked them specifically about the potential, what, what was the most likely sort of relationship between the perpetrator and the child affected. One of the things that I was quite interested in was whether people thought that child sexual exploitation was particularly associated with abuse that was mediated by the internet. Um, there's been a lot of press coverage, a lot of kind of media debate about the role of the internet in abuse. So I was quite interested in whether that was something that really stood out for people. Um, and in the question about what's the relationship between the perpetrator and the child, it didn't stand out. So people thought the most likely um, relationship between the perpetrator and the child would be a friend or acquaintance followed by a family member. And that, again, that's going back to what you were talking about earlier about the work that's been done to help people to recognise that in child sexual abuse, um, we are generally talking about people who are known in some form or another. Um However, when I asked people what scenarios they most associated with child sexual exploitation, um, the internet ones came out quite strongly. So the scenario that Mm. I think people associated top was an internet one. And also what I tried to do with the scenarios quite often was put in sort of pairs where there was an internet one and a non-internet one. Um, And the internet one came out higher whenever we had those kind of pairs. So... There was something there for me around when you ask people in kind of one way, when you ask them this thing mm. that there's been a lot of work about, 
around the sort of relationship between the perpetrator and the child, they they seem to know what they ought to know. But when we asked them about scenarios, they were kind of thinking much more about potentially kind of particularly scenarios involving the internet. Um, and that sort of left me wondering, what does that mean in practice? You know, maybe some of this messaging about the perpetrators being known is getting through. But if people were faced with an actual situation, is that something they would kind of still know in the situation? Or is it something they kind of more know that they're supposed to know? Because that's what they've been told. Mm. Um, so this study was very much a pilot study. You know, it was kind of the first time um, I or anyone else has really had a go at looking at this um, in Scotland. So it's very much an area that I think maybe needs further exploration because it's coming back to that question of, you know, we were asking about public understanding because we want everybody to be able to play the part that they can play in preventing child sexual abuse, including child sexual exploitation. And I think we need to understand a bit more about the different ways some of these messages are getting through to people. Yeah, I, I was going to say that say that, that this hasn't been looked at before, right? So there's nothing to compare it to if how the public understanding of child sexual exploitation has, you know, changed or developed or, you know, if there's any pattern to how different campaigns targeting attitudes towards child sexual exploitation so things like mostly people who are perpetrators are those that are trusted so you don't really know there's no sense of knowing how this understanding has developed and if these campaigns have had any effect on effect on it so so there hasn't been very much that has looked at kind of public understanding as a kind of standalone concept um, sometimes when there are specific public awareness kind of campaigns or pieces of work, there'll be evaluation around that. Um, mm. And for example, um, uh, my finding about men kind of seeming more disengaged than women, um, there was a piece of work around an evaluation of a specific kind of awareness raising piece of work in a part of Scotland, which came back with something quite similar and which talked about whether we need to do awareness raising a bit differently with men and with women because we need to find specific ways to engage with men um so there's been some specific stuff about kind of awareness raising campaigns um but kind of less taking this as a kind of concept as a whole and trying to look at something like can we track this over time is it sort of changing over time that would be something that i'd love to know in the future mm. you know finally about public understanding the final thing i want to ask you is that uh, you find that there are particular messages that are that appear to be not embedded well in public understanding. So there's certain things that people don't seem to know about child sexual exploitation. What are those things? Yeah. So I think there were two in particular that really struck me. So uh, you asked before about what age is a child, um, and as I say, mm. we're kind of talking about. Um, the UN definition children up to the age of 18 um, and I don't know if you've ever come across um, anything like this before I've had uh, several kind of conversations with people where people seem uh, quite confused about what consent is um, and the kind of mm. relationship between the age of consent and abuse so I've heard people say things like but she was over the age of 16 so she consented um, and there's I you know I find that quite worrying because there's you know a big difference between being of an age 
where the law says you are able to consent and actually giving consent to sexual activities um and you know starting with some really important basics around um no one is able to consent to abuse I think are messages that we still need to be getting through to people um so one of the kind of messages that generally in terms of child sexual exploitation has been something that people are quite keen to get across is that this does go up to 18 this does not stop when someone hits the age of consent someone can still be abused you know just because you are able to consent does not mean Mm. you have necessarily consented so this can affect 16 17 year olds um and i asked people what age groups they thought were most likely to be affected um and people didn't seem to think really that it was 16 to 17 year olds they either didn't know or they thought it was all children equally um or they thought it was younger children so Mm. I, i suppose it's coming it's coming back to that question of trying to get people to kind of understand and recognize um child sexual exploitation so that they can play a part in preventing it and the concern would be if this was happening to a 16 or a 17 year old and that 16 or 17 year old was telling you about it would you know enough to recognize the potential for abuse there and to kind of take that seriously and to believe them um or would you dismiss that because that doesn't happen to 16 17 year olds Um, yeah I did I did think of that you know when you said what is a child is until the age of 18 I I, I did come to my mind that maybe people find it confusing with the fact that age of consent is 16 in Scotland so there's maybe that first tumbling block over there that oh uh, but the age of consent is 16 but then you know there's this this is this is if, if someone isn't engaged with with sexual violence or gendered violence and isn't really thinking much about it and isn't really consuming uh, an understanding of it that goes beyond mainstream media and how it portrays sexual violence and gendered violence and child abuse i can see how that understanding can be limited but but like you said we need to tackle that that notion and i think especially i I really wanted to emphasize on this because from what you said it, it stands out that the reason why a 16 or 17-year-old being abused should come under child sexual exploitation and is child sexual exploitation is because um, they don't really have the same autonomy. They don't really have the same um, ability, right? Is that is that possibly another line of argument there? So I think I would actually uh, challenge something that you said just in that because I think it's quite important that we distinguish between someone who's reached the age of consent and may be able to consent but is not actually giving consent um so you know Mm. just so there you've got a 16 year old who might be able able to consent under the law but that doesn't mean that she is actually consenting you know if she is being coerced you know if somebody is uh, taking part in sexual activities because they are very clear that they or a member of their family is going to be harmed if they do not that is not someone who is consenting to sexual activities mm. um and i think it's it's that that's sort of one of the misunderstandings i think that needs to be tackled um and that you know that's whether that child is 17 16 13 you know that's not about age that's about coercion um mm, right i do one of the things i do wonder about and uh, this comes back to what i was saying 
at the beginning about child sexual exploitation was a terminology that developed for a specific purpose. Um, you know, the reason we talk about child sexual exploitation is to emphasize that these are children who should be recognized as children being abused and afforded the protections of child protection systems um, and of action taken against their perpetrators. Um, but I think there is a sort of obvious issue that when people think of the word child, do they think that that means up to 18? Or do they think of a much younger child? Um, I mentioned at the beginning that one of the places that we really know very, very little about is how young people talk about abuse themselves. You know, if you talk to a young person about child sexual exploitation, do they think that it might be their 15-year-old friend or their 17-year-old friend, or are they thinking of a much younger child? Um, and I was trying to get a piece of research started um, that was kind of looking at this. So I did pilot some discussion work with young people to get a sense of how young people talked about abuse. And one of the first things that came up was that child definitely seemed to be thinking much younger um, in young people's mm. own discourses. So, you know, there is that as well, that child is in there for a specific purpose, which is to help us to recognise that these are children being abused and not children getting a place to stay or not someone getting a place to stay. But that does also have other implications maybe in kind of public or young people's own discourses to think about. Mm, thank you. Thank you for, for um, correcting that as well, because in highlighting coercion as a very integral element of this, this, this is a child and it doesn't, the age isn't really of consequence, but the, the fact that this person is a child and is being coerced into being sexually exploited the fact that they're 16 or 17 and not 13 or 14 doesn't matter but there is that coercion element and uh what what i was trying to my confusion was that oh child sex, sexual exploitation versus sexual exploitation right but um you know what you said is clarified that because this person is still a child and uh just because they're able to give consent does not take take that away yeah, and yeah, it's the just that then able to give consent doesn't mean they have given consent. And I, I think you're right to highlight the links between child sexual exploitation and, and sexual exploitation as a whole um, as well. Um, can mm. I talk about the second message? That? Yes, please, yes. please go for it. Um, so, so um, yeah, so you asked, there are these um, maybe particular messages that aren't getting through. Um, and one of the other ones... Um, is about young people themselves potentially being perpetrators. Um, and so uh, one of the things that has kind of come up in terms of child sexual exploitation is these scenarios where, you know, the young people are not that different in age. I mean, you, you know, you might think about a 13-year-old with um, a 17-year-old who the 13-year-old thinks that's her boyfriend um, and he's manipulating her into providing sexual activities for his friends, maybe, or for people he wants to impress. You know, it's not necessarily um, the much, much older adult men who are the perpetrators. Um, it can be, um, but it, it is trying to be aware that we can be talking about perpetrators who are themselves under 18. And again, that was something that didn't seem to really resonate with people in the survey. So I asked people what age um, they thought, were most likely to be the people carrying out child sexual exploitation. And again, a lot of don't knows, a lot of all, all ages equally, um, but they tend, but where people did pick an age, they tended to go for kind of adult over 30. Um, and they didn't necessarily mm. 
think of it being younger people maybe perpetrating the abuse so that again mm. something to be aware of yeah yeah for sure and also something to you know maybe maybe prevention programs should keep in mind and parents as well yeah um you know for me personally hearing about child abuse and talking about child abuse is really difficult like i find it particularly hard to look into child abuse and i'm thinking about all of this work that you're doing in this study as well and you know talking to people and challenge not even challenging but actually just talking to them about their views and is this emotionally draining and how do you maintain your emotional well-being with this work oh i think that is a uh, such a massively important question so you know in terms of doing this work i'm you know i'm not on the front line i'm not a support worker who is working with young people affected by this every day but i do through the support workers and sometimes um kind of through contact with young people hear a little bit about the stories and you're right it, you know it is it is emotionally draining there is the potential um you know even with the kind of limited contact i have to be traumatized by hearing um these other stories um so i do think that it's um really really important that people in roles like research or policy or some of the kind of other jobs where you might have contact with this material but not in everyday way i think the judiciary is a really important example um that these people have some form of support or supervision around the content you know it doesn't it wouldn't need to mm. be at the same kind of level as a frontline worker you know it wouldn't need to be that kind of um uh, sort of ongoing regular support and supervision that frontline workers should be getting um but should have access to someone somewhere who understands and a space to kind of talk about what it is like for you to process some of this material the other thing i would say that you know working with young people is a huge and enormous privilege so um the domestic abuse project mm. that i'm working on at the moment we are unbelievably fortunate we have this amazing group of young people who are called yellow um and they <laughs> are advising us you know on what it is like um to be young people what they want from the child contact system what they want our research project to do and it is just it's such a privilege to have them be able to provide that advice firsthand but also just to get to know them as young people they are quite an extraordinary group i am absolutely sure that they are going to do amazing things in lots and lots of different ways so you know having that contact with young people you know yes kind of doing some of this work obviously can be emotional emotionally draining but it also can be inspiring um and pretty incredible to have that privilege to share in their stories and to sort of see young people becoming the amazing leaders of tomorrow that they have the potential to be oh that's amazing and um i believe we're out of time right like we're we should probably wrap up we are can i give you one last plug so i just mentioned yellow who are the young advisors to my current domestic abuse project which is called improving justice and child contact uh, and they have just written a response to a piece of legislation that is just started in the scottish parliament which is called the children scotland bill mm -hmm. um and their response is pretty amazing it's got you know what it is like to be a young person in this situation and how they want the law to change um to respect mm. them and make their experience better so that is i would say well worth a read if you would like to know a oh. little bit about what young people think i would love to and also like finally i want to ask you if you 
if you were to give one thing to the listener if they were to take one thing away from this conversation what would you want it to be would you want to highlight a particular thing uh so i mean the overarching message which um i hope came through in very very different ways throughout this is i very much believe that child sexual abuse is not inevitable and that we can all be part of preventing it um and i suppose it's I would just want people to kind of think about what they can do. And as I say, I think that starts with if a child ever raised something with you, that you would believe them and that you also think about how you talk about anything in this area and that you make sure you're not slipping into blaming a child when mm. the people we need to be talking about are the perpetrators who are carrying out the abuse and how we can stop them. That would be my key message is just to remember that hey. we can all do something and prevent child sexual abuse. That's a very empowering note to end on and I think generally to keep a uh, hold off all the time. So thank you. Thank you Ruth. Thank you for speaking to me oh, and thank thanks you. for all your powerful powerful work. Thank you so much for your <laughs> not time just, and not for... just your academic work but also Well, thank you so much for your time and for um making the podcast and getting more people to talk about sexual violence because as you say it is a difficult thing to talk about and we need to make more safe spaces for that. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. That was Dr. Ruth Friskney and uh, thank you for listening. You have to leave a review if you like the episode. That's really, really helpful. It helps get the podcast traction and also leave feedback because that's the only way I can know what to improve on. But really, thank you so much for tuning in and all the links to organizations that support survivors are in the podcast description as are links to reaching me so the twitter handle the facebook page and the email address yeah that's everything tune back in next sunday and thank you for listening i am asmita and this is talking research